I happened to mention to one of my daughters the other day that human beings, in my view, are insufficiently aware of the power of the conscious brain, of the non-conscious brain. The sizable chunk of the brain, that is, to which we have no direct access except when it throws something up into consciousness. Specifically, I said that we needed to attend to how we could make more effective use of the non-conscious part of our brain, the vast majority. Her response was, and how do you do that? It's a good question. I've been thinking about it since, or at least the non-conscious part of my brain has, because it hasn't occupied many of my conscious waking hours. A first stab at a response is to ask the same question of the relationship between appetite and digestion. How does our appetite, our taste for certain things, provide our digestion with the nutrients necessary to sustain a healthy lifestyle or body? Of course, much of the time it doesn't, or at least it operates inefficiently and in ways that make life more difficult for us than it need be by feeding the digestive system with the wrong things. But that only strengthens the parallel. We commonly feed our non-conscious brains with pure nutrients, just as we feed our digestive systems with poor nutrients. Our digestive systems do their best to compensate for our gastronomic incompetence, but they can only do so much. The same is true of our non-conscious brains. The old computer adage, garbage in, garbage out, frequently applies. But not always. And sometimes we are right to take in what appears like garbage because it can provide something that seems to catalyse our thinking on completely unrelated matters. Perhaps simply by switching our conscious processing off as when we, so to speak, literally or metaphorically, go for a walk or sleep on it. Where the non-conscious brain is concerned, diversity of input and neglect of conscious attention and effort appear to be the order of the day. Our digestive systems are not that different. Consciously dieting can cause as much damage as it purports to repair. And being too consciously concerned about what we feed into our non-conscious brains can have, I would suggest, a similar effect. But you may perfectly reasonably ask, if the non-conscious brain is so powerful, estimates of around 11 million bits per second are common and widely accepted in the in the discipline compared with a paltry 16 to 120 bits per second for consciousness. I've mentioned this before in a previous voice note. What is the non-conscious brain doing and what can we do to direct it better? What indeed is consciousness doing after all? The simple answer appears to be that consciousness acts like a kind of signpost or traffic cop directing attention to what seems important and of interest in the moment, but not as a processor in its own right. Consciousness is pathetically bad at thinking. 
The injunction we often hear from teachers to children to think harder doesn't seem to be accompanied by any identifiable executable action. What on earth would that entail? Not being able to remember a word or name in those occasional it's on the tip of my tongue moments is seldom resolved by thinking harder about it. Quite the reverse. The best strategy appears to be to forget about it when suddenly it then comes. Some philosophers of mind conclude from all this and much more that consciousness is virtually useless. What's called an epiphenomenon, something floating on our underlying non-conscious neurophysiology that registers thoughts but has little or no control over them, or indeed us. I think this is a mistake that flies in the face of experience and practice. The emergence of consciousness is a game-changer, but in a subtle way. Consciousness can and does channel our attention into matters of interest. Read this, speak to her, go there, invite him here, research this apparently unrelated and irrelevant area, even though you have no idea why. In so doing, we feed our non-conscious brains with material, information in both the colloquial and the technical sense, as nutrients for it to work with and on in the background. The direction of one's personal interests is each our own. So what we feed in tends to govern what comes out. By and large, novelists don't come up with theories in particle physics because they don't feed themselves with that kind of nutrient. What we feed into our brains defines who we are and what we do as much as what we feed into our digestive systems defines our physical being. There is a significant and important element of feed forward. Today's conscious direction of attention becomes the source of tomorrow's inventive idea, even if we have no idea of what's been going on in the meantime, and often without our being able to identify all the input that has produced whatever comes out, because we simply can't know all that went in. What goes into our non-conscious processing isn't entirely determined by conscious attention. Quite the opposite. It can't be. If we consider the bandwidths we've mentioned before and before in this note, if 11 million bits per second flow into the brain, much of it from the eyes, and only 16 to 120 bits per second passes through consciousness, it's perfectly obvious that most of the things we are absorbing, processing and learning cannot be appreciated or noticed consciously. Non-conscious cognition necessarily vastly outweighs conscious cognition. It's odd then, isn't it, that we spend so much of our lives, and particularly our education, attending to conscious cognition. 
to the ponderous, lugubrious absorption and processing of information that we can appreciate consciously through reading, speaking, writing and language. I've deliberately left listening out of this because it's different. Hearing, like sight, can process a lot more information. Sight may be 10 million bits per second and hearing up to about a million. So listening, especially to music or perhaps poetry or literature read by someone gifted at speaking, has the capacity to bypass consciousness and enter the non-conscious brain without being filtered. This obviously raises the controversial question of so-called subliminal learning through such things as subliminal images and subliminal sounds. Are these to be encouraged because they enhance non-conscious cognition or deplored because they influence, influence us in ways we do not have a chance to filter consciously? What seems certain is that we have the capacity to learn without the involvement of consciousness by absorbing information we are unaware of. Viewing a painting or even the way we read a page of text can furnish examples. We see far more than we know, than we are conscious of seeing or reading. That's one of many reasons I remark in passing to have doubts about the efficacy of such things as speed reading. Do we understand properly how we read at an ordinary speed and how much of that process depends upon non-conscious cognition? Another reason to doubt it is that quantity seldom compensates for quality. It's better to read a page well than a book badly. There's another dimension to this that we haven't mentioned so far. Short-term memory is, a pathetic, is as pathetic in comparison to long-term memory as conscious to non-conscious bandwidth. We can remember almost nothing short-term something like 12 to 18 items at most. So consciousness and short-term memory in conjunction have access to tiny bandwidth, bandwidth in processing and immediate memory. Any serious processing therefore has to be done by the non-conscious brain with its access to more memories than we can recall in a lifetime. Of course, some will want to caution against all this. What isn't consciously perceived and controlled, they will say, isn't controlled at all. There's no telling what our non-conscious brains may come up with unless we keep them under our conscious thumb. This obviously needn't be true, that we can direct our attention to things, then forget them and let things run in the background, the computer metaphor isn't entirely incidental, clearly indicates that what is going on is to some extent under control, but only in a general sense. The great novelist carries on coming up with novels, the physicist with physical theories, the composer with music. Each of these is part of what constitutes the kind of person they are. And they are, to some extent, in control of that because of the traffic cop attention 
deciding role of their conscious existence. One of the most interesting aspects of all this is the role of mystery ingredients, that if we follow the whimsical suggestions that pop into our heads about what to do, read, listen to or look at next, we often find that days or weeks, perhaps months or years later, they come to play a role, sometimes a crucial, vital role, in some project we have not even imagined when we indulge that whim. So, one of the answers to my daughter's question, in addition to those we've already explored, is that we should trust our instincts and follow our hunches and give rein to our flights of fancy, even and perhaps especially when they appear irrational, inexplicable, divergent or just plain wacky. On them, the success or failure of some barely conceived enterprise may rest. So what in sum are the answers to my daughter's question? Certainly to allow consciousness to direct our attention on the basis of our interests and personal makeup. Some of the material we are directed towards may seem irrelevant and some may not. We should trust both. And we should privilege quality over quantity together with intensity of attention, immersion in our area of interest, even becoming obsessional about it, will furnish non-conscious cognitive material we could not devise deliberately. Once we've eaten these resources, there's little more for consciousness to do but wait while the non-conscious brain uses patterns of processing we've been helping establish for a lifetime to digest them and make of them what it will. We can't tell it what to do right now. We might as well try telling our digestive systems what to do with a salad. And there's obviously no time limit. We just have to be patient. We can't force it. Nor should we forget the mystery ingredients. A little spice always adds flavour. Above all, we should see enhancing non-conscious cognition as an experiment. Learn to monitor the results, accentuate what seems to have worked and eliminate what doesn't in our own particular case. And consciousness will play a vital role in that evaluation, swiping right and left, Tinder-like, on the basis of its perceived preferences. But that's what makes it a game-changer, that it creates feedback loops based upon verbalised, abstract and complex preferences that define the development of our non-conscious brains and establish who we are.